And welcome, everyone, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side, and I am joined by my esteemed co-host from Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. Kurt Dupuy. Kurt, how are you today, sir? I am doing pretty well, my friend. Finer than frog hair, as a former boss used to say. Wow. That's one of those Southern things that I probably could never you understand. You don't even know so, what those words mean, do you? I, I, I don't, actually don't know what those words just that you just said were. I have no well, idea. Well, let me explain it. Let me, let me Please. edumacate you. There you you see, frogs don't have any hair on them. So I'm doing That's finer it. than that. Oh, wow. <laughs> see, we had frogs in New Jersey and we didn't have... That's a pretty good saying. I like that. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. We're going to lead with a segment that will be recurring. Kurt and I read and discuss an article on a relevant topic. We talk about the positives, the negatives, add some things, some commentary, have a little fun with it. Today's article is from US News on niche marketing. Can we also do like a drunk history segment where we drink and talk about articles? Can we add that there to the go. segments too? There you go. <laughs> then we're going to be joined by Paul Side, a successful entrepreneur and venture capitalist and might be related to Steve as well. We talked to Paul about lessons learned from decades of running his successful business. And we also talk about the challenges of financial professionals working with entrepreneurs. It's really, really great to have him on. And finally, we conclude with our Costanza Corner, which involves Jim from The Office. A few other points to learn more about us and listen to past episodes, visit touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. You can expect new episodes to be released at least every other Tuesday. And as always, you can reach out to us at the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com for any reason, including getting added to our distribution list. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, let's get into our article on niche markets. So the title of this article is How Financial Advisors Can Choose Their Niche. And this article is April 8th, 2019, so slightly dated, but not too bad. So what I'll do is I'll start actually going down and reading the article relatively quickly, and then Kurt and I will just kind of talk about it, and that's we'll see how this goes. So you can't be everything to everyone, nor should you want to be if, if you've chosen a career as a personal financial advisor. In a world of over 7.5 billion people, standing out is not only an art form, it's essential especially if you're self-employed. Clients have more than 300,000 financial advisors to choose from in the U.S. alone, according to Cerulli. And now, thanks to robo-advisors, the competition is even steeper. Why should they come to you when they could get their financial planning taken care of sitting on a couch? I disagree with that premise right up front. In most cases, I don't think the robo-market has intersected with, with the target market of advisors today. That probably comes in the future more but I yes. think Robo is less of a, of a problem than, than what many people think that it will be. But what's your take on that? Totally agree. And I use one of, uh, I mean, I use two of my best friends here in Atlanta as an example. One is um, a nerd, loves, he sells software. Um, he's comfortable with that space. He has a Robo. My other good friend is a business owner. His, his finances are complicated. He likes a personal touch. He's also a really good referral source for his financial advisor. He would never consider going robo. Yeah. So I, th I just think like everything else, it's it's like discount brokerages back in the 80s and 90s. They're going to find their market. There, there's definitely a market for that. Sure. But I, I, I think people need to think of ways to stay ahead of the curve 
to insulate their businesses. But I mean, when you think about the demographics of the people that have money, which are baby boomers, um, the less comfortable with technology, less of a threat, but that doesn't mean it, it's always going to be that way. Yeah. I, I think that the value above a robo advisor of, a, of most really good financial advisors is so clear to me. It's almost crazy to think that- It's laughable. It's, yeah. It's crazy to think that you could be sub, uh, substituted by that. I just don't think you can. And I think on the investment side, and we're not allowed to talk investments on this show, but I will just say this, um, you know, the robo-advising and those kinds of auto all work fine until you hit a bear market and they have no yep. one to talk to and they have no one to figure it out because all that exactly. stuff just looks backwards. Because you can't control for the behavioral aspects, which are yeah, are I mean, significant it, in investing. Yeah. But ultimately what draws and retains clients is knowing what you can serve their finances better than any other financial advisor out there. Clients want niche advisors with curated expertise designed just for them. An advisor should want new clients within their niche. So now we're going to get into how to choose your niche. Now, a lot of this, Kurt, I would think is pretty natural, you know, like where a lot, you know, some advisors are just involved in a particular niche and that becomes easy. But I've also seen advisors created from scratch. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, that's going to be, let's get existential on it. Do you pick your niche or does your niche pick you? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It, it could come from both ways. I should just say you should be really interested in the niche, you know, like sometimes accidental niches that you don't care about that much could be problematic. But I think if, if you're involved with that community and you believe in it, I mean, it could be something that's just a wonderful uh, relationship for you all around. And some, some niches will be more of a, a target rich environment, right? If you're, if you're, trying to market yourself to professional water polo players, you could be really good in that community, but I just don't know how many of those there actually are. Exactly. But you can choose a niche. You can choose it. Yes. You know, if you if you just decide it takes work, it takes target, it takes effort, but you can choose it. It doesn't have to be something that's so natural. You know, you want to go down the route of niche marketing, there are ways to do it. Okay. So how to choose your niche, the article goes on. Understand why you need a niche. That item one seems a little ridiculous to me, but okay, fine. We'll go with that. Look at your current book of business for inspiration. Consider your local demographic. Build off your personal experiences and expertise. Turn your passion into a niche. So we have a tool that really just looks at common characteristics that would help someone develop a niche. What sort of affiliations do you have? What sort of professions do your clients have? And we sort of color code it and it creates a, a quilt graph of where, where your niche is. It's a really cool exercise because people might have some intuitions like, oh yeah, well, I'm part of this country club. That's my niche. It's like, well, yeah, but have you ever actually looked to see what percentage of your clients come from that? Um, have, you, have you looked the last five years, how many new clients you've actually gotten from that niche? Because the answer is zero. It's not really a niche. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the the goal here is, is to start helping people think about what their niche is, how they can find a niche. All right, let's continue on uh, at the article, why you need a niche. So whether you call it a niche or a niche, the important thing is you need one to be a successful financial advisor. I have to tell you, I hate that language. I hate that language. When someone gets there and says, you need to, need to do it, you can of course, you don't need to do it to be a successful Correct. financial advisor. I don't know why people write that language. I, I don't. It reminds me of one of my favorite Star Wars quotes. Only a Sith 
speaks in absolutes. There you go. Yeah. So do you think something that has to be this way or that way? Yes, I I, I agree. The, the the world is gray. Yeah. I, not, I, not to get I, when, philosophical. When I read here, an but. article that says so and so needs to do X, Y, and Z, I'm immediately turned off from it because yeah. no one has to. Well, it's also like the seven things you need to do to like get clean cuticles or or whatever. I, I, don't, I don't know what whatever the topic is. It's not seven things. It's not three things. It's probably it, it could be a hundred things. That's that's the way our world works. But this is it's funny. You know, we're we're trying to be coaches and and consultants and all those things to the financial advisor community, and there are others out there that do this right. This is how we're going to be a bit different because we're not going to use stuff like that. There are many reasons we're going to be different, but when you hear one of us say that you need to do this, know that uh, call us out on it, please. Well, and to be to be clear, I, I will come out with some a, a post on LinkedIn or something that says the top the three things you need to know. I am going to do that. So you're going to do that. All right. Well, call me out on it anyway, because because <laughs> we have low expectations for Kurt. All right. So specialization is how financial advisors can differentiate themselves from the competition when it comes to their profession. Instead of just being one of the financial advisor herd, you can stand out as one of the few who have wings instead of wool. Potential clients who are looking to fly will know with one glance that you are the financial advisor for them. Look at that. Look at that wording there in yeah. that paragraph. Man. Um, but I think I think. I think the point with with niche is made there in a very long-winded way is that going where every single other financial advisor does and just being a generalist, there's really not – I mean, you can differentiate. Of course, there are things you can do. But if you're focused on laser focused on a particular area, which is what a niche is, the opportunity for differentiation is much larger. Do you agree? Yeah. And uh, I mean, cue the fairies and the hallmark music, but there's tons of things about each one of us that make make us unique. I think that's all all finding a niche is, is both internally your personality and your experience, but also externally, like the, the groups that you associate with, there there are synergies in there. Just go find those. Yeah. So end Hallmark commercial. Yeah. But, and, and you could think about how much better you can serve versus a generalist. So you're someone who's a part of a specific community. You're involved in what they do. You know the community, you know the ins and outs. And so you, at some point, bring up business in an appropriate way. And then all of a sudden comes some generalist who is not part of that community. You're going to have such a, a major advantage in that particular case. That's how I think about it. That's it. So the caveat, of course, is that anyone who doesn't want to fly probably won't choose you as their financial advisor. Wow. But it comes down to quantity versus quality or prospects versus long-term clients. You can market yourself to every prospect in the world, but chances are only a small percentage of them will actually become clients. By focusing on a smaller targeted group, you can hone your marketing. While reach won't be as wide, your actual conversion rate will likely be much higher. That's probably right. Your conversion is probably higher. That feels right. Directionally, that feels I'm going right. to go with the thumbs up. Man, I'll tell you what, this is uh, this is some language they use in this article. Uh, with financial advisor niche, you can also refine the products and services you offer. And this is what I was talking about before. At Vimest, a goals-based financial planning application, they choose to specialize in millennial investors. Having this focus has allowed them to concentrate on creating products and services that meet a specific need, says blah, 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 person. Um, I'm going to push back on the article there. I don't think millennials is a niche market. Do you? Uh, no, fully. Well, first of all, 
who would want to target millennials? I mean, geez, <laughs> this person has to be out of their mind. They are clearly a soci- sociopath. Um, <laughs> but no, that's that's a target market. So it's not have, narrow did, enough. It's, it's, it's not, not narrow enough. It's like I well, I want to target people with money. Uh, oh, great! That's that's super general and not helpful. I find that even when people think they're narrowing it down, sometimes they don't. Now, let me give you an example. You know, a client says, I want to focus on the medical community. That's still not narrow enough. It's going within that and saying, I want to be the financial advisor that the, you know, these type of oncologists go to. Like the more narrow that you can get, the better you're going to be able to target for that particular niche. The, the more niche it gets. The more niche There you go. I think we're just <laughs> so, making up words. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember having this conversation with uh, with a guy one time, and, and th- this came up. Niche, niches came up. And, and boy, with, with utter confidence, he told me, he's like, yeah, my niche market is people 58 to 65 with a million dollar or more in assets. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was trying to to gently say it's like no that's first of all every advisor would say that. So that's yeah. not specialized at all and that that's more of a target market. Of course you that's want right. pre-retirees and retirees because they have liquid assets, but guess what? The 30 other people in your office want that too. My niche market are, is going to be humans if that's cool with you. <laughs> yeah. Not specific enough side. Okay. So how do you go about getting a niche? Often your specialization will come naturally, says this person. If you already work with lots of clients nearing retirement, for example, you can use that as a launching point to build a specialization as a financial advisor who works with near retirees. Again, I disagree with that. So let me hit you with something. So what I what I referenced a little bit earlier about the guy that said he was basically looking for pre-retirees and, and retirees, I do have a client who specializes in a single town, in a single retirement community, he is the go-to guy in that one community. Yeah. And it's it's a big development. They actually have a few different locations nationwide. He's trying to get into the other developments as well. That is a niche. Correct. It's not just saying generally, I want 60-year-old people with money. It's like, I own this one. I mean, I, I think he has like a third of all the people in this development are, are clients or, or, or some, something that is pretty impressive and there's thousands of units here. So it's, it's a really good spot for them. Yeah. Your local demographic can also point you to a lucrative niche. For example, advisors who work in an area where the core demographic is employed by a single company, you could develop a business working for retirees of that specific company. You could befriend an HR person at the company to learn about the benefits, such as retirement plans that are offered. If your current book of business isn't already pointing you towards a given niche, think about your own experiences and expertise. This person says, um, it was very personable for me. Her experiences helped share and give her a better understanding of the needs and challenges faced by women in transition. So in this case, she was focusing on women's in transition, which I think is that's probably better, but I think could still get na- even more narrow. Yes. You could also turn a passion into your niche. And this is what I mentioned before. If you're passionate about helping immigrants improve their quality of life, make it your niche. If you're already involved in your local school district, you can target your services towards employees. That's what I was mentioning before. So, you know, for me, there's particular things that my wife and I are involved in a lot of animal charities. Again, I'm not a financial advisor, but if I was, you can rest assured that would that, be your that, world. 
I, I would target I would target that, and I would target that because that's what I'm doing anyway. So why not you know learn how to serve that community? It's only natural, right? So let me put you on the spot. What would be my natural ecosystem or or niche if I were a financial advisor? You have to answer that, don't you? How could I answer that for you? Tell me. Well, I don't. LSU. Uh, that's oh, a LSU. Would, LSU would be my jam. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're an LSU fan within a hundred miles of me, uh, look out. It, it'd be like it's be some combination of LSU, uh, like Gun and Garden magazine, where uh, you know subscribers uh, that have small children, since that dominates so much of my life. That that yeah. would be, that would be my my three pronged niche. Kurt and I keep throwing out these ideas, like, oh, these are stuff that we're directly involved with now. But the truth is, let's say we started a business, and our first six clients had a couple of commonalities. It doesn't have to be something that we're in today. The point is, it's just something where you can really dig in, you know, take action, um, get involved with that community. So it doesn't have to be something that's supernatural to you, although that it helps, obviously. This, this is a thinking exercise to help narrow your focus. Yeah. And I don't think it matters if you've been in this business 30 years or or three months. Thinking through a, a small market where you stand the best chance of success makes some sense. And if you've been in the business a long time, thinking through what your current book's like, your current book looks like would be a valuable exercise. But if you're three months in the business, thinking about the types of folks that would be good clients and where you speak the language and have similar values, that that, that would be an appropriate exercise as well. So all, all, all this is, is narrowing the funnel. Yeah. Well, that, you know, there's some FAs we get asked all the time, like, you know, you guys help with, with financial advisors and different challenges. I just want to grow. Right. And so oftentimes there's, different strategies that we can talk to them about. But some people are at a point where they're just, there's no low hanging fruit. They just got to grow. It's almost like starting from scratch. They built this up, but they're at a plateau. There's no low hanging fruit. So what is starting from scratch again? What do I do? Um, this is the topic that we often bring up. I, at least I do more often is like, okay, let's start talking about niche marketing, right? I don't know if yeah. you feel the same way. Absolutely. Because the, there's there's kind of two approaches, and I think you said kind of internal or external. Internally, we do a ton around practice analytics and where is that low-hanging fruit, and we are deeply entrenched in that world. But we don't have all those tools at every different firm. So if you're looking at outside, you can say, Wait, what's, what's your marketing strategy? Very few people have a marketing strategy. But more importantly, who are you going to do said marketing to? This is the first step in that process. Just, yep. again, just narrowing down the universe. So I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs and get to towards the end, how to market yourself to a niche market. Once you've chosen the shingle, you want to hang out. It's time to paint it so it attracts the right notice. How about that metaphor, Kurt? Oh, beautiful, beautiful analogies here. One way to advertise your expertise is with relevant designations. The financial industry is littered with certifications and credentials from CFPs to charter financial analysts. FINRA lists 193 professional designations on its website. Some designations are what we call football fields, meaning they cover a broader way of subjects, but never in terrible detail, says blah, 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 blah. Other designations are Orwell's, meaning they cover only a few subjects, but do so at great depths. Is it just me or is this not talking at all how to market yourself to a, no, a niche? Yeah, it's mean, talking I, about I, designations, which have little to do with this. Yeah, I think the point they're trying to make, and I'm going to stop reading from here because I don't think they're making it, they're making their point well, is like, if you could get 
some designation that targets your market, targets that market. So think about like a, you know, for divorcees, there's something that you can get to target them. That's the only one I can think about it. Are there others? Yeah. It becomes harder. Um, The answer is, I don't, I don't know. So I think to me, if, if your niche is as narrow as Kurt and I are suggesting that that whole idea of certifications is probably not going to be something that you do for a particular niche. But heck, there's 193 of them out there. So maybe there is one that's appropriate. We just don't know yeah. about it. <laughs> let, let me sum up here because this article, I'm going to be honest, went off the rails on this. This was this was a fluffy piece. We wanted to pick You're an welcome, article about America. Nature. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. Uh, Kurt and I wanted to read this just to share with you how smart we actually are that we can make fun of an article. No, but the point, the point up top uh, and the purpose of the article was very valid that Niche marketing is is one of the best ways that we can think of um, to to grow your business. Um, it's not going to be for everyone, but a lot of the really good advisors that are out there are doing this well, and those are the advisors that are growing, you know, faster than than what the industry is as a whole. So again, not everyone, but a good portion are doing this, and we thought it was worth bringing up. I see this is in the same vein as developing your your personal value proposition. We talk about PVPs, right? It's it's the cocktail party where someone asks you, hey, oh, you're a financial advisor. Oh, what's your niche? You should have your your answer down pat because you've thought about it. Same with your your personal value proposition. If you meet somebody at a cocktail party, can you in 30 seconds tell someone in a very impactful yet succinct way what you do? Yeah. Okay. So I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. If you have articles that you'd like to address or discuss on the podcast, uh, send those over to us at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com. Up next, our interview with Paul Side. And welcome, everyone. We're really excited uh, for our interview guest today. He is Paul Side, who also happens to be my uncle. But more than that, he's a successful entrepreneur, angel investor, venture capitalist, and so much more. Uh, uncle Paul, thank you for joining us today. It's absolutely my pleasure. All right. So let's just jump right into it. And and the reason we wanted to have Paul on the show today, we want to we get across a couple of things. First, he is a very successful entrepreneur. So we want to talk to him about you know, running a business, some of the things that he's learned over time. We also want to talk to him about the industry that he spent a long time in, which is the dental industry, and thinking about that as a potential niche for financial advisors to consider. And finally, working with ultra high net worth clientele. So those are our three objectives for the interview today. So let's let's just jump right into it. And maybe, Paul, you can give us you know, just a little bit of, of your history. Um, you know, how did you start the business? Give us some of the background if you can summarize. Yeah. Um, I was raised in a, a lower middle-class family that dipped into poverty when my father went into bankruptcy, um, in, uh, Queens, New York. Uh, I barely got through uh, high school and, and college which means that you don't have to be educated to be an entrepreneur <laughs> and um, never did finish, never did finish my, my master's program. Uh, after college, I had a couple of quick jobs that I got fired from within six months. And then I went to work for the Burroughs Corporation, which is Unisys now. And they taught me simple accounting and sales, which proved invaluable to me thereafter. And uh, what happened is one day in September, around my 23rd birthday, I woke up, and this was 1971, 
and decided that uh, I should be in business. Uh, the only problem I had was all I had was $2,500 to my name, so I didn't care what business it was. It just had to cost $2,500 down. <laughs> and uh, the first business I looked at was uh, concrete pumping, but that was 100000 to get into it, so that went out of the way. And then I came across this uh, little dental company, which was doing uh, $90,000 a year in sales at the time. Uh, and uh, the fellow who was owned it was had died. The widow was trying to sell it. Nobody wanted to buy it because they were afraid of FDA problems, which were involved with it. But since I had never even heard of the FDA, it didn't really matter to me. And we negotiated a price that was $2,500 down, and I was in the dental business. That's so funny. How, how come you struggled so much in school? What was it about, about that that caused you to struggle? Well, um, I think it's uh, pretty much that I, I had ADD and, uh, you know, staying fixed on, 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 on uh, whatever the, the teacher was working on was not really uh, something that I was into. Uh, but from reading later on, I found out that many, many entrepreneurs have ADD and it's actually an advantage because they can switch from one subject to another easily. You bought this business, $2,500 was your only criteria, which is kind of funny. So then you bought it. Then what? So then uh, it was myself and uh, I didn't have any money to pay anybody because my whole 2500 went into that. But I had a, a, there was a fellow working there that the widow had hired. He was a, a pharmacist from Thailand. And, uh, so I kept him on and, uh, and then I had to hire, uh, once, once the business got going a little bit, I hired, uh, uh, what they called a secretary in those days, I guess you call him an admin now. And, uh, what I would do is, uh, I would pay them every Friday. Then I hired another fellow because I needed more help. And uh, every Friday, I would run a poker game to try to win back the money that I paid, <laughs> which was pretty successful since they weren't very good poker players. So, uh, so that's, <laughs> that's the way I survived. And you know, the you know, off of a, a, a obviously a very small base, um, I built the business up over the course of I think I owned it for. Uh, I guess it was about 37 years. And we had a compound growth rate over 37 years of over 16% wow. with only one one acquisition along the way. Whoa. So when I sold it, it was doing uh, about 50 million in sales. What, what specifically was the business? You know, we, we talked about it was in the dental, but what did you guys do? Uh, originally the, the, almost the whole business was, uh, manufactured certain small, uh, pharmaceutical products, which is where the FDA came in, uh, for dental use in their offices, plus other different chemicals. And then, uh, over the years I expanded it to include, uh, more, uh, chemical based products. Plus then we started to, uh, buy, uh, innovative uh, licenses or actually pick up the distribution for innovative products. And um, so we bought and resold. And by the time I sold it, we were manufacturing about 
55% of what we sold and res- we're doing resales of about um, uh, about 45% of what we sold. So the business grew, you know, quite nicely. And some of these companies I would buy an interest in so that uh, I guaranteed the uh, delivery to us. Um, and, uh, you know, various and sundry other things. But all in the, almost all in the dental field. And then in, probably in the last five or six years, we branched out into uh, the beginnings of uh, hospital sales, uh, specifically of infection control products. And uh, that's actually brought me into some of the businesses I'm in today. So gave me some knowledge of those businesses. But but it was uh, it was a fun run, you know. Yeah. So you you sold the business after man, what a what a what a stretch with a sixteen percent Kager over that long. Yeah, I sold it to a company called uh, Dentsply, which is the largest company in the dental field. Um, stroke of luck, I was looking to sell the company. They were looking to buy uh, what was a middle-sized business in the dental industry, and there were only three companies available that they had on their uh, horizon, and and two of them weren't for sale. So uh, I was uh, a willing seller, and they were a willing buyer, and I had decided in the summer of 2006, I had seen serious economic problems coming to our country. So I made a decision in the summer of of uh, 2006 to sell the company and um, hired an investment banker who was also a friend of mine. And we found uh, two the two major companies in the dental field. We went to one and I didn't, didn't like uh, somebody I would have to work with. Uh, so we went to the other one, which was Dense Supply, and they were just happy as can be that I showed up on their doorstep. And uh, I sold it. I closed in July of, of 2007. And about 20 days later, the first of the hedge funds started to fail. Later that year, Lehman went down, and you know the rest of the story. Wow. So if I had waited a year, Forget it. I would have gotten uh, half the multiple of my EBITDA. And I do a lot of reading uh, on economics and, and things of that nature. I'm a politics and economics junkie, so I do a lot of reading in that area. And it was just clear as a bell to me that things were going to collapse. See, very, very few people had that view in 2006. Um you know, we got to be careful on this podcast of getting too much into investments. But I'm curious, what were some of those things in 06 that jumped out to you? Well, I mean, credit was a problem. You know, it was an obvious, obvious problem, as it is today. And uh, and it was not sustainable. And, and, and I knew that if the credits collapsed, then everything else would collapse with it. And there was just too much, too much money floating in areas that they shouldn't be floating. So it was just clear. So can you tell us about the transition from from selling your business to getting into uh, venture capitalism? You know, the way I always put it is that if I didn't do what I was doing, I would be a gardener because I love to see things grow. Hmm. Yeah. And and it was just, um, 
it was just my nature to do this sort of thing. Over the course of the years that I was ran my company, um, I, I, I probably bought, sold, invested in um, 15 to 20 companies, you know, in Asia and Europe and the Americas, both continents of the Americas, because uh, I just liked it. And not all of them were successful, but a bunch of them were. And uh, it worked out very well. So it was an, between, between loving to do this and, and my wife telling me that I better figure out what I'm going to do when I retire because I'm not going to hang around her, <laughs> uh, I got into something that I really love to do, wow. which was, uh, which was uh, investing in small startups and, and whatnot. So I, I did that in a, in a, a bunch of different ways. Um, I had been putting small amounts of money with a, a private equity company. Um, and I, I expanded that. Um, I knew my, my personality was, and, and, and this is what all entrepreneurs have to be. They have to be risk takers. If you're not a risk taker, you can't be an entrepreneur. Um, but I was, you know, too much of a risk taker. So what I did was I took, um, uh, about a third of the money after I paid my taxes and whatnot, and put that into bonds, and uh, and and that way I guaranteed my income for life. And the, with the rest of the money, I started investing. So I started with this private equity firm. I invested with a company that buys uh, multifamily housing. I started an account with Morgan Stanley. I bought into a, a startup private equity firm. Yeah, those those are pretty much the things I did initially over the first few years, and and additionally to that, I looked at companies that I I loved the technology and uh, I invested in them, and you know one had to do with technology logistics in uh, the trucking field, another one was a hot device that hopefully will get FDA approval next year. Uh, I have a robotics company that I am the CEO of for in the medical field, things like that. It didn't matter what the business was. I just had to fall in love with the technology after looking into it. Well, so back to when when you were running your business, uh, and I'm I'm sure you learned enough to fill many mahogany rooms uh, filled with books. But if you had to narrow down, what are some of the really important lessons that you learned along the way? The single most important lesson I learned is I'm not the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> and there are a lot of people around that are very good at things that I'm not very good at. So I looked to hire people that were really, really good in the things they could do, whether it be finance or marketing or, you know, on the manufacturing side, things of that nature. And, and, uh, and 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 technology was very important to me always. You know, I was always a believer that you had to put uh, reinvest one to two percent of your sales into into advancing your technology, which was great because um, when Densply bought us out, they they actually, even though they were forty times larger than us. When they bought us out, they ultimately went to a, a variant of the technology that we were using. No kidding. In our uh, 
distribution and our, our run, business running and manufacturing areas. So that was, a, a, I thought, was a, a nice feather in our cap. But the other thing is, I'm a big believer in, in, in personal relationships. You know, knowing the people you're doing business with, to me, is, is a big advantage as opposed to just running your business by emails and, you know, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so I, you know, traveled all over the world to see my, my customers and or, and or suppliers or, you know, regulatory people, governmental people in the various countries to see what their regs were. And that was very important to me. Um, really important is you have to be afraid. You have to be unafraid of, of losing, you know, some things you do just don't work out and will cost you money and anguish and, and things like that. But, but the important thing is when you lose, you need to learn from what, what made it, what caused it, what caused you to lose, you know, what, but then you just get up, keep going, you know, you pretend you're Rocky, you just shake it off, brush the dirt off and keep going forward. And, and the other th- last thing is, I think, you know, your instincts. Instinct carries me a long way. Um, goal orientation is important. You have to know where you're going, you know, what you want to do, how you want to get there. So planning is is uber important. I guess those are the most important things I learned over the course of time. And that's nothing, I didn't say anything original there. It's just, that's what it takes. Yeah, th- th- there's so much in there to, to unpack. I mean, it, it, we're the next question we wanted to throw your way was what were some of the biggest challenges was it the failures along the way i mean what did you find most challenging about running a business for that long the truth is i loved it you know um there were challenges along the way there was serious you know ultimately the fda and and i did not see eye to eye you know they wanted things done in a certain way and i had issues with that uh and and the uh, European Union, their uh, regulatory bodies, you know, but we worked we worked through those things. Um, there were times when, uh, for instance, in the in the crash around two thousand, I was uh, margined, and when the crash came. I didn't. I had serious problems coming up with the cash to cover those margins. So I never went into margin uh, purchasing ever again. Um, and and today I'm the same way. I, I I don't like to use margin. I'll use a business loan if it's if it's the requirement. But personally, I don't have any mortgage on the houses I have. I I just don't believe in that. So a couple of times I got slammed down. Um, but again, you just figure out why you got slammed down and, and fix it and, and keep going. It's, it's just, uh, the way it is. And, and as far as risk taking, which is heart and soul of, a an entrepreneur, you have to learn to control it. Um, and, and, and that's what I did when I, I took a lot of my money that from the, the sale of my business, I put it into bonds so that I guaranteed my income. And I learned that lesson actually at a blackjack table <laughs> in Atlantic <laughs> City when a fellow was supposed to pick me up. We were going 
we yeah we were going we were going for dinner we were having a sales meeting there and i was up about eight or ten thousand dollars at at 6 p.m when he was supposed to pick me up and he didn't show up and instead of turning away from the table i sat back down and he showed up 10 minutes later i was down a couple of thousand and I said, that's about the stupidest thing I've done in a long time. <laughs> so, so I learned to control my risk taking after that and, and learned to walk away. I found out I wasn't invulnerable. And, uh, you know, that's, those, are, those are the things that I had to learn to do. So you, you sell your business in 06, closes right before the financial crisis. What was it like for you, you know, almost the day after you sold your business. It, did you have to? Did you take time off? Did you start and say, "Okay, I'm going to start sitting on boards"? What was that like immediately after? Because that's a huge lifestyle change. Oh no, 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 no! I had my marching orders from my wife. <laughs> Is that Find what it was? Something. So it was. <laughs> it was. It was not even I could think about taking a vacation. It was right back to it. I had to go out and find some things. And that's what I did. Right back into it. And the truth of the matter is, I was going into something I loved and to this day love. So it was not that difficult. Um, you know, I, and the things I brought to the table and, you know, with other companies or, or, or being on boards was I had a lot of experience. Um, and and I could share that with companies. You know, I didn't necessarily, for instance, I was on, you know, I'm a, I was on the board of a, a de- company that made a device for repairing uh, uh, heart disease. And, and you know, I don't didn't know anything about that. But I could tell them about setting up sales forces in Europe. And I could tell them about, you know, running businesses and and. and Again, a lot of instinctive stuff that I did. Um, and, and as a sidebar to that, I got into mentoring, you know, young people, because I love to do that. I always love to do that. You know, I was a big brother years ago um, in the Big Brother, Big Sister program. And, and I just always loved that sort of thing. And, and I guess a couple of years ago, a couple of young fellows um, – asked me some questions and I gave him some answers and, and turned to me and said, how do you know all this stuff? And I said, well, I know all this stuff cause I'm old <laughs> and I've seen this stuff 40 years ago, you know, <laughs> and it's, there's nothing original, <laughs> nothing is new under the sun, you know, technologies may change and things like that, but there are not a lot of things, you know, aren't governed by certain laws of business. So that was, um, that that was one of the things that got me into all of this stuff, and because I just loved to do it, and it was it was easy, you know, it was an easy transition for me. I went, I went, I don't think it took me a month before I started getting involved in all this stuff. Well, Paul, I, I was wondering if we might be able to 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 pivot. I, I don't know what, uh, how much Steve has told you about our podcast, but what, and what we're hoping to accomplish with it. But, you know, the, the main audience is, is folks in the wealth management world. And really we're trying to develop a, a, a platform and a community to talk about things that are going on in wealth management. So I, I, it sort of begs the question, how did you find your financial advisor, assuming that you have one? Um, I have more than one. 
And the way I found them was through uh, references from friends that were successful in their field or um, had seen the operation of specific uh, financial advisors over the course of time. And I, I, I used their, their knowledge to piggyback on and, and start. And, and some of them, you know, I started in a small way and grew. Some of them I started in a much larger way and, and, and kept it stable. Um, but it was almost exclusively through references from uh, business friends that I respected and, and would follow their advice. And these are other business owners, or are you talking about like investment bankers and accountants and uh, folks like that? One came from my investment banker. One came from my uh, accountant. One came from a, a, a friend where I started in a small way with them, and 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 then grew much much larger. All people I respected. You know, I didn't I didn't take any flyers with this sort of thing. It was that would be a foolish. A foolish thing to do. Yeah, and and why use multiple? Let's start there. And and, and I want to cover a couple of things. One, why use multiple advisors? And what was it about? You know, after you met with them, you know, you got suggested these people. What were you looking for? Because sometimes it's it's not easy um, working with entrepreneurs like you who have run a business. Certainly have a view on the markets. Um, I know there's a lot I just asked you there, but I'm wondering if you could address those couple of things. Well, first of all, you know, I'm a smorgasbord kind of guy. Um, I like different things. You know, you can see it in my investments and, and whatnot. Um, I don't believe that anybody has the single answer to to unlimited growth. And, and I wanted different things. As you said, entrepreneurs are highly opinionated people. Yeah. Uh, you know, just ask my wife. Yeah. <laughs> And like smorgasbords, um, apparently. But yeah. what do you mean? Yeah, you didn't have to agree so quickly. You know? <laughs> Each investment, of course, you have to make a decision whether you wanted to do it or not. So I had plenty of input into what I wanted to do and what I liked, and um, so that's that's pretty much how I, I handled it. Yeah, I, I I've got you know, there's a couple of different things I want to make sure we capture. Uh, before we conclude the interview, the f- the first is the dental business. So we talked a lot about you being an entrepreneur, but I'm wondering if you could talk about the dental business broadly, because I always understand it to be, you know, a much more lucrative business than the medical industry. I mean, talk about the dental business then and now, and some of the some of the um, pieces of it, if you will. In the early part of it, uh, dentists were doing okay, and and then. Starting like in the 80s, and especially in the 90s, and and more so today than ever, they really started to make money. Today, if you have a kid and you can get them into dentistry, that's a pretty damn good career. So the distributors who who we sold to, because we sold on a wholesale level, um, they were making money. Um, you know, they they were averaging as a distributor over 30 points, 30%. 
margins. You know, where in the medical field it was a quarter of that. And uh, because they were all making money, the manufacturers could make money. So it was a really a very lucrative business for a very long time. And it was kind of a backwater to the medical industry. You know, people stayed there. There were a lot of family-owned businesses originally. But uh, over the course of time, even though it became um, l- much larger, it's significantly larger today, obviously, than it was back then, uh, it's much more corporate now. Margins are thinner now. There was also uh, the change was there were uh, 90 or 100,000 uh, single practitioners uh, back then. Today, there's uh, uh, large groups that take up a, a, a decent percentage of the business and they're growing like crazy. So they're pressuring margins ferociously. So it's it's not as nice a business as it was then. And um, growth isn't there like it was, uh, either top line or the bottom line like it was then. Um, a lot of the family-owned businesses, my my own included, were were bought out. And uh, like myself, the entrepreneurs left the industry to corporate executives. So it's um, it was a better business then than it is now. All right. So there's a lot we covered here today. And Paul, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was it was a joy as always. So Paul Saad, I really want to uh, thank you for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Okay. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. So that there was a lot there. Let's sum up. Most of what we discussed were insights from running a business. So what were some of those insights? Being an entrepreneur is about taking and managing risk. Don't be scared to fail. If you aren't failing at all, you probably aren't pushing yourself. Fail quick, learn something, get back up. I thought that was really interesting from from him. Surround yourself with people who are good at things you're not. A good example is I've been working on hiring decisions with a member of our community, and we are creating the job responsibilities precisely using this approach. Third takeaway, invest in technology. If you're at the big wirehouse, which many of our audience members are, you're always getting new technology thrown your way. Look into that stuff. Take advantage of it. Lastly, goal orientation, planning. Sounds super simple, but I know financial professionals that do annual planning, then it goes on the shelf. Really, really think about creating goals, action plans, things of that nature. Really important. Then we got into you know, the idea of working with entrepreneurs. Takeaway one, they're highly opinionated. They're likely to be more challenging than most clients, but you can create a balance between their input and your advice. And remember, all people still want to be led. Paul talked about variety, not all eggs in one basket. A lot of uh, ultra high net worth people are like that, but there's still the opportunity for you to provide the full solution. And that's your challenge. But here's the thing. You know it's most beneficial to have all your assets in one place for planning purposes, so you can get there. And finally, when you successfully work with an entrepreneur, capture those stories, those insights, think through and be able to communicate them because like any niche, relevant and powerful examples are how you resonate and differentiate. And despite having strong opinions, there's immense opportunities to add value with people like Paul. So we've mentioned a few takeaways, but that might be the most important one from this episode. Identify a type of client you want to go after, entrepreneurs, niche markets, et cetera, and develop relevant stories precisely to that audience. And we're happy to help with that. 
So send any of those kind of questions to us over at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com. We can help you craft those stories, internalize them, create elevator pitches, all of that, which can ultimately help you get in front of the types of prospects and close them when you do get in front. Next up is the Costanza Corner. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to do our Costanza Corner right now. And Kurt, I think you're up. So in these work from home times and lots of bits of information coming at us fast, it's been particularly difficult, I think, to separate the wheat from the from the chaff and find good news. But there is a hot video circulating and hot as in viral, not as not in the other kind of hot with John Krasinski, who is Jim from the office, who started a network in his office that's very poorly produced. It's almost comical called SGN, some good news. So I guess the idea is that he he had his daughter's make a logo for SGN. He gets up in, in a suit and tie behind the screen and just shares videos of positivity that are going on around the world. So the first few minutes are dedicated to healthcare workers around the world that are on the front lines of, of fighting the coronavirus. Uh, and it's just, it was just fun. It's in, in typical gym fashion, you know, a smirk and a smile and, and some good news. Uh, and, and having a wife that works in the healthcare field right now, I found it very uplifting. That's fantastic. I'm going to look at it as soon as we get off, but I, I think it's much needed. I mean, we have this segment because we want to provide you with uplifting things. You turn on the TV, it's the ratio of negative to positive is overwhelmingly negative. And that's that's what this whole segment is about. So uh, I will check that out. Everyone out there should. Um, we're going to conclude here. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This is The Whole Truth. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.